chapter two, we'll read the entire chapter here this evening, so beginning with verse one. The book of Hebrews, you are probably aware as well, uh, written for those who, uh, those Jews, fellow Jews who had accepted Christ, but now we're being tempted to go back to the old ways of Moses. Uh, to perhaps not give up on Jesus, but to also find comfort and hope in the things that they did before. And the book of Hebrews lifts up this only mediator that we have. Indeed, our only comfort in life and in death. And so it is this Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, congregation, hear the word of the Lord as it is read for you tonight. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source— And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of faith were subject subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May his Holy Spirit bless it to our hearts as we consider it together tonight. I draw your attention to our text for this evening, which is verse 17. It's in that larger pericope there that speaks of how the Christ took on flesh and blood. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's ask God's guiding hand upon his word as it's brought forth here tonight. Heavenly Father, indeed, we do pray for your special hand of mercy and grace, that special leading of your Holy Spirit to have us learn more of these eternal truths, these great and timeless truths. And Father, may we understand how important they are, how easily we go astray without them. And so open not just our, our eyes, but our hearts and our minds so that we might see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in all of his holiness, fully God and fully man. Father, teach us these truths. Grant your blessing to us and lead us ever closer to you. In Jesus' name alone we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this evening in Lord's Day 5, we begin what, as I mentioned, the second aspect, the second part of this road of salvation that our catechism explains so wondrously to us. And for the person who has successfully negotiated that first leg of the journey, a most difficult and hard leg of the journey, I might add, that section on sin, for that person who now understands their lost spiritual condition, who will admit to their great need for salvation, that person is now ready to move on to the second leg of the journey. They're now prepared properly to hear the scriptural truths that will be found in this second section of our catechism. Great and wondrous truths. But, beloved, and understand this clearly, if a person will not submit themselves to or admit the truths that are found in the first part of the catechism on sin, they'll never understand the need or the reason for the second part of the catechism on salvation. Can you understand how this works? You see, if someone is still resisting the fact that they are totally depraved, if they will not agree that they are a sinner who is worthy of the eternal punishment of hell for their sins, if they will not confess their need for a Savior, then any and all talk to them about a Savior is lost on them. It just goes right over their head. You see, if a person does not know or will not admit that he is lost, he's surely not going to stop and ask for directions, is he? You wives know that about your husbands, right? That's that thing with us guys. Just know that, ladies. If, to, if we stop and ask for directions, that's asking, that's admitting defeat. We're surrendering. No guy wants to do that. Well, if that is true, for us on a 
driving level, how much more so isn't that true on a spiritual level? Whole generations of people, men and women alike, never admit their most basic need in life, never acknowledge that they are spiritually lost. And so we must understand, beloved, this evening, that this second section of the Catechism will only be profitable if we have first admitted our great need for a Savior. Admitted that we are sinners lost spiritually in life and we need this one, this only one who can save us. And so let me ask you, each one of you here this evening, can you admit that? Admit that you're a lost sinner apart from Christ. That there's no hope for you. That only eternal damnation awaits you without faith in Jesus Christ. You see, one of the marks of the true Christian is that day by day, we will understand more and more our own unworthiness and God's great holiness. Day by day we will do this. Because once we're saved, our recognition of personal sin grows with each new understanding of God's greatness. When we better understand his glory, we better see our own helplessness. So the more Christ-like we become, we see how much farther we have to go. That's the mark of a true Christian. And so let me ask you, will you recognize that you are lost? That you're, so that you're willing to hear the catechism and its truths as it teaches us directions to glory. Well, if you're willing... Turn with me then to that second section of the Catechism, which begins at Lord's Day 5. Take out your hymnals now and turn to Lord's Day 5, should be found on page 874, and follow along with me as our Catechism teaches us these truths here this evening. I ask you to keep your Catechisms out. I know that all ministers do that, but I like our people to do that. Uh, Keep them because we're going to look at these question and answers in some detail. As you look for that, page 874, uh, let me also say our catechism has been criticized by some because of these very teachings that begin with this Lord's Day. Uh, They say that, these critics say that especially in question and answers 12 through 18, the writers of our catechism have become too too technical, uh, too theoretical, scholastic and doctrinal in their approach. With Lord's Day 5, these critics claim the catechism has lost its beginning emphasis on comforting the heart and and it's more massaging the mind. Stuffing into our heads doctrines that these critics claim, anyway, are unnecessary for us to know. Well, beloved, on the one hand, I will admit that these next two Lord's Days do seem to belabor a a rather technical theological point. Our catechism writers could have perhaps 
said this in a simpler way, maybe even skip these points altogether without anyone even noticing. But our confession is not willing to do that, congregation, because our catechism writers are wise. They know the tendency of the fallen human heart towards error. They remember well their church history and the many doctrinal battles that were fought down through the centuries over ages-old heresies that keep raising their ugly head that are centered around a misunderstanding of the very points which our catechism here is explaining to us, namely the nature and work of our Savior Jesus Christ, his nature and his work, who he is and what he has done for us. Just what is it exactly that the Bible teaches about this Savior? And what is it exactly that we must believe about this Savior in order to be saved? That is what our catechism strives to explain in the next few Lord's Days. Who Christ is and why being that way is so essential for our Christian faith. And yes, this does get a bit technical, theologically speaking. That is true. But this is exactly because so many false teachers down through the ages have not been precise in their thoughts about the nature and work of Christ. And they've lost their faith because of it. So our teacher, the catechism, wants to make sure that does not happen to us. So let's begin here. Question and answer 12. Lord's Day 5. Now, Question and answer 12 is really a a summary of that whole first section of the Catechism, Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4. So listen to it in that way. Uh, Question and answer 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? And the answer comes, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Sin must be paid for, in other words. He cannot just look the other way and let it go. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. This brings us to the first point of the message then tonight, namely that sinners deserve an eternal punishment in order to satisfy the eternal justice of God. That's one way to pay for our sins, suffer eternally in hell because of it. Now that truth seems harsh, even over the top in the minds of many. But our catechism writers want to make sure that we have fully grasped the truth that was taught us in that first section on sin. Our sin has so violated God's justice, God's holiness has been raped by our wicked deeds and thoughts, and so our sin must be paid for. There's no out. And this biblical truth cannot be stressed often enough to us. Because you see, we as unholy people never quite see sin in the same horrible way as what God sees sin. Have you ever thought about this? You see, God is holy and pure 
and righteous. That's why he cannot stand the sight of sin or even sinners. While we live on this sin-filled earth, surrounded by evil, and we just say, oh yeah, God can't do that. We as sinners are not nearly as shaken or offended by sin as what God is. We're far more inclined to settle for good enough when it comes to our holiness than what God is. Now, we recognize sin. You know, when, 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 when someone really sins, when there's a, a, a big bad guy out there, we say, God, you should get him. But my little wrongs, Piccadillos, yeah, they're not so bad. We can convince ourselves of that, but we can't convince God of that. Even a little sin, James says, one sin is enough to send us to hell forever. So question and answer 12, one last time, wants to impress upon us that good enough is never an option for God. His justice must be fully satisfied. Keep reading. Question and answer 13. Can we make this payment ourselves? And the answer, certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Our catechism here in question and answer 13 and 14 is taking up and then just as quickly dismissing a couple of other possible ways that we often think God's justice can be satisfied. Well, maybe we can do this ourselves, question 13 says. And the answer is no. If we were to put this in monetary terms, uh, it would be as if we owe God a hundred billion trillion dollars. And we don't have one penny in our pocket to even begin paying down our debt. In fact, we increase the debt every day. And yet how many religious groups down through the ages haven't tried to rely on their own goodness uh, their, their own efforts, their, their own abilities uh, to try to earn favor in the sight of God. If I just go on this religious pilgrimage, if I pray this many prayers, uh, if I keep this law, stay away from that sin, uh, if I'm baptized to come to church, profess my faith, give my money, uh, then, then God will love me. Really? Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. We increase our debt every day. Answer 13 tells us that because we ourselves are sinners, we can never take care of our sin on our own. Well, all right, if if, if I can't do it, how about something else? Anything else? Another creature, maybe in my place, doing this for me. Question 14. 
Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Now take notice of what our catechism is is stressing here. Our catechism writers have in mind those groups who try to rely on, on saints or angels, perhaps, to earn God's favor for them. It has in mind the Roman Catholic Church. And the cult of Mariology today among Roman Catholics is growing ever stronger. Did you know that the hottest topic of debate within the Roman Catholic Church in North America today is whether or not Mary, the mother of Christ, should be proclaimed by the Pope to be a co-mediator with Christ in our salvation. A co-mediator. In other words, you can have faith in either Christ or Mary and you'll be saved. Beloved, Mary couldn't even pay for her own sins, much less for the sins of anyone else. And neither can angels pay our debt for us. Because remember, what, 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 remember what was said at the end of answer 11. You're close there. Look at the last part of verse 11. God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. This part, eternal punishment of body and soul. Body and soul. Angels have no bodies, congregation. They're spirits. And so they cannot take on our human sin and pay for those in their bodies. They don't have a body. Well, all right, someone can still come along and say, well, how about animals then? They have bodies. Yes, that's true, they do, but they have no soul. So neither can animals meet that strict requirement that God's justice sets forth for the payment of our sin. Look again at that last part of the last half of answer 14. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. This truth is verified in Belgic Confession, Article 26, where it states, we have no access to God except through our mediator, Jesus Christ. No access to God except through Christ. He is our only hope, our only mediator. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself here, now, wait a minute, what about, what about the Old Testament? What, what about all those, those animal sacrifices that God demanded in that day and age and that the Jews performed? Uh, that's how the Jews were saved in Old Testament times, right? Wrong. That is not how the Jews were saved. That's a very common misconception today, aggravated greatly by dispensational theology, to think that the Jews were saved in Old Testament times by bringing animal sacrifices to the temple, but we now, as God's people in New Testament times, are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is wrong thinking. That is unbiblical thinking. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that righteousness is by faith from first to last. In chapter 4, he goes on to state, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is belief in the promises of that Messiah. That's how Old Testament saints were saved. The Old Testament animal sacrifices, understand this well, congregation, never saved anyone. Nor did God ever intend them to be. God intended for those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament age to be pictures of the promised one who God said would one day come and lay down his own life for his people. They were to be symbolic, a foretaste, you see, of the ultimate sacrifice that his son would come and make on the cross of Calvary. They were a picture for the one who brought the animal offering of the ultimate offering that the long-promised Messiah would come and perform. God had so often in the Old Testament age promised that he would send that Messiah. Remember, right at the very dawn of human history, when Adam and Eve first fell into sin, what was the promise that was given to them? That one day one from the line of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So already... Adam and Eve were called upon by faith to rely on that promise of God, to look forward for it, to pray for it. And so it is by faith that that Old Testament sacrifice sacrifice was brought to be both a confession of sin on the part of the one who brought it and a request then for God to forgive that person of their sins. And that was what those animal sacrifices were supposed to represent. But the problem, sadly, is that all too quickly, because of that ever-present sin within us, the people, the eyes of their faith fell off from the promises of God and fell onto themselves that they were bringing a sacrifice. And so they started believing it was the animal that did it. If I just bring this animal, do these things, try to be good, God will accept me. And you see, that's exactly what we still fall for today. Well, yeah, we know Jesus came, but, but I have to help him with my salvation. I have to try to, to, to be good. Uh, Jesus saves me, but I'm the one who stays saved by, by being a good little boy or girl. No. That thinking will only condemn you, not save you. And that is exactly why our catechism writers go to such great lengths to explain Christ's sacrifice, what he did so carefully to us. Because still today we so easily lose our way when it comes to faith in Christ. So congregation, understand this To be imprecise and vague in this matter of how we are saved is a recipe for disaster. We have no access to God, our Belgic confession tells us, except through our mediator, Jesus Christ. No other entity can satisfy God's justice. Well, all right. Thirdly here then this evening, our catechism in question and answer 15 begins explaining the dual nature of this mediator. Why he must be both God and man. 
perfectly human, perfectly divine. Question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And the answer, one who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. You see, congregation, if the one we trust in for our salvation is not both of these things, fully God and fully man, then we have no salvation. Our religion, what we're doing here this evening is a farce. Our mediator must be truly human so that he can take upon himself our human sin. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 clearly speaks of this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Our mediator had to be human so that he could be made that sin in our place. But this mediator also, you see, needed to be fully God in order to endure the punishment of God against our sin. To withstand this infinite divine curse of God against us. Realize that God's wrath against our human sin is so great that anyone who is less than God will be consumed by that. Will never survive that punishment. And that, you see, is exactly what our text is so beautifully pointing out to us. Uh, You may put your catechisms away now because I want us to focus on our text now for this evening uh, for just the brief time we have left. It's in that, again, verse 17 is in that broader uh, passage starting at verse 14 that speaks of how uh, our, our mediator must be flesh and blood. And so verse 17, look at that again with me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, and notice the two reasons why, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Secondly, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what our high priest has done for us, you see. Make, made propitiation for us. Notice he had to be made like his brothers. He gave up the the glory of heaven in order to become human. One of us here upon this earth. So that, or in order that, those two reasons. First, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. This is our first great comfort here, beloved. God had instituted the human high priests in the old covenant age in order that they could both speak to the people on behalf of God and also speak to God on behalf of the people. That's what our new covenant age high priest mediator has done. He came down to this earth, spoke to us on behalf of God. We have his word. We hold it in our hands and read it with our own eyes. That's why this book is far above any and every other book ever published. We must be people of the word, hearing what God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And then also now he has ascended to the father's right hand to speak to God on our behalf. He mentions to God your very name, your concerns your heartaches, your praises. Our great mediator, 
Jesus Christ. That mediating role of this, this Jesus, the Christ of God, was a common theme, runs all through the book of Hebrews. This is why the writer of Hebrews gets on his people to such an extent, because they were, they were tempted to leave this Jesus. Well, they still have this Jesus, but kind of just tuck him away. While I still do all these things of the law, follow the law of Moses, be circumcised, do, do this, don't do that. And the writer is saying, no, you're taking your eyes off from your only hope in life and death. It is Jesus who now stands as our perfect and ultimate high priest, mediating between a holy God and we who are yet sin-filled people on this earth. Only when we're covered by Christ, only when Jesus intercedes on our behalf, will we not be consumed by God's hatred of our sin. So our covenant mediator, our heavenly high priest. But notice the second reason. This is so important that we understand this right. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Beloved, here is what propitiation means. You know, I love that word because most people have no idea what it means. You run across it and people go, what? They think you're talking a different language. As Christians, we have to speak this language because here is our hope. Do you understand this word aright? propitiation. It means to turn aside God's wrath that we have coming to us, deserve justly because of our sin, but to turn it aside from us and have it be poured out upon another in our place. Our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God's just wrath against our human sin being allowed to be poured out, allowed to be paid for in full, but not upon us, because we would never survive upon the eternal Son of God, who is the only one who can endure it. Beloved, therein lies our hope for salvation. Can you see this? We must never forget the eternal, searing, scalding, hot wrath of God that he holds against our sin. It is not something that that he'll just get over or can sweep under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Apart from Christ, beloved, realize this, God hates us and will punish us eternally because we're sinners and God hates sin. It's apart from Christ, we have no hope. In Christ, and this is the great good news, in Christ, we are God's saints who he gathers as his own people and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Even though we did not do it, it was Christ who did it for us. This is propitiation. God's all-consuming wrath against us turned away from us and poured out upon another. That is the basis for our comfort and our joy, both in this life and in the next. And that is why if you're relying on anyone else other than Christ to turn God's wrath away from you, you're relying on a false, a false idea. 
So congregation, our catechism explains for us here substitutionary atonement. How we who are sinners and deserving of eternal punishment of both body and soul, yet have been set free, fully received and accepted by Christ because of what Jesus did, both in his perfect life, living out pure righteousness for us, and then in his sacrificial death, paying the ultimate penalty for our sin for us. The punishment that we deserve, he receives. The righteousness that he earned, he gives to us. This is double imputation. Double because first turning aside God's wrath and then righteousness being credited to us. And that dual work of Christ, our only hope in life and in death. It's not in who we are, how hard we try, what we've done that we find our hope. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that is the essence of the Christian faith. So congregation, may that great truth of your salvation enliven you, bless you, and guide you as you go out through those doors and out into the work work week May you serve him with all your heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that indeed you have given to us your only begotten Son who was made like his brothers in every way except for sin so that he could be made sin for us and that we could find your good graces Not in the things we have done, but in the complete and finished work of Christ and what he has done. Father, may that great truth be with these, your people, as they go out into the world this week. May it shine forth from their hearts and from their lives. May their minds be settled and their hearts find security in their great Savior. Lead them and bless them. Guide them as only you can do, and give them your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name alone we pray, amen.